As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Get lucky this morning. Waylee's with us. Waylee, good morning. From BlackRock. Waylee, thank you for being with us here in New York City. You came into this year conservative on equities. Mm -hmm. The equity market rallied. You stayed conservative on equities. Mm -hmm. The equity market started selling off. You're still cautious. Can you walk us through why? I have no clue. Just to add to your montage. No, we can can go to the montage. That works perfectly. Of things. Uh, But the reason that we're cautious on equities is really that if you look at where valuations are, it's pricing in still a very uh, modest kind of growth uh, uh, outlook uh, for the economy as well as for earnings as well. And if you look at where rates are, as you know, we have been of the view that they cannot cut rates. Now markets are moving closer to our view. But markets are still looking at rate cuts later in 2024. And we think that actually... Given how a resilient uh, uh, economy has been and how much the recession will be pushed out later uh, down the line, actually rate cuts also needs to be pushed out further as well. So equity markets in developed world are not quite appreciating some of the macro uh, challenges that we see happening. And that's why we have been prudent. Now, having said that, our time horizon is six (coughs) to 12 months. And some of that uh, metrics that we use to uh, support the cautious view is valuation based, but that is not to say that we cannot have shorter term bouts of rally, which we saw in January, right? Like driven by technical mm-hmm. factors, short squeeze, driven by FOMO uh, flows as well. Real money uh, uh, investors are telling us that, you know what, after a year like 2022, they cannot afford to miss the rebound. So they're just going to pre-position for that, even if they know or they fear that it could get worse before it gets better. In your beautifully elegant note, you talk about a new regime. I'm going to label it a BlackRock new regime. Larry's probably going to go, no, it is. It's a way Lee new regime. But whatever it is, it's a new regime. If we're not going back to securities analysis and factor analysis pre-2020, what are we going forward to? Well, the new regime is predicated in terms of the macro drivers of the current environment, that we are moving from the great moderation with economic cycles shaped by uh, uh, demand to the current environment shaped by supply and supply constraint in particular. Factor analysis is difficult because factors are time-varying concepts and right. factors can be can mean different things okay. to different people. 
I, I, I <laughs> interrupt because we got to do a mathematical clinic here. I, I mean, like right now we've got a Taylor rule as divergent from Fed policy as we've ever seen. Mm. If you do the partial differentials of factor analysis, I get the idea. It's mud out there. You have no idea visibly where you're going. If you do the partial differentials across any Fed theory now, mm. do they work? At this juncture, no. Thank you. Uh, at this juncture, no, just because uh, of how unstable some of the uh, forces are, right? Like, so thinking about, you know, like uh, uh, our star, you know, one could see actually it moving temporarily before settling back down, uh, given the kind of environment that we see uh, right now. So as it translates into uh, uh, factors, it's, it's, it's tough to apply the old playbook to factor uh, investing. You know, like people say, as we head into recession, we got to shy away from value, but we're also in an environment where rates are going higher and curve, in our view, should steepen over that six to 12 month horizon. So we actually think that there is more room for factor uh, value uh, to, to, to perform, but we want to be a bit more selective. So we apply a quality tilt to the factor, typical factor exposures. When you talk about rates going higher uh, from here, HSBC Stephen Major put out a note this morning where he said the debate in bond markets today is whether to buy and hold short-dated bonds at close to 5% or go for the longer ones, which are almost 4%. And it goes to this belief, are rates going to go higher and stay there for a longer period of time? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, do you want to capture uh, just what you, can, what you can get at this point? Where do you fall on that debate? The, for, uh, the former. So we like front end of the curve uh, over the back end of the curve. Uh, you know, you take very little duration and credit risk. You get paid. T-bill is paying you almost 5% and commercial papers are paying you 5.5%. You know, these are very attractive income uh, opportunities. And given our view that actually rates will stay longer for higher for longer, we don't necessarily want to kind of go into the long end of the curve, especially given how inverted curve is at this current juncture premium should come back. It's underappreciating the degree that we're going to have to live with inflation. Um, and uh, we, we, we do want to kind of sit out and when, bunker down. When will that value uh, proposition change? When will sort of the long end start to look more attractive to you or even risk assets start to look more attractive to you than a 5% uh, short term rate? Um, I, I think it comes it comes down to to what extent macro damages are being priced in by markets. So the reason that we currently are shying away from developed market equity while modestly uh, underweight is because we don't see the macro challenges being fully priced in. So we're bunkering down in short end of the uh, curve. But uh, if market pricing changes, getting closer to our fair value, that would certainly change uh, things as well. But also, we're actually on a global basis, we like emerging markets, we uh, we have an overweight, very modest overweight in emerging market equities. So think of uh, our view currently as almost a babbling between um, the short end of the government bond market in the US and emerging market equities on the other on the other hand, given where uh, the, 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 the pricing and the valuation sits at this current juncture. The last thing I would say is that this is an environment with very heightened macro and market volatility. We have to change our views very quickly. We've already changed our views twice and we're still in February this year. So, you know, like it's, it's very dynamic. <laughs> Can we finish on China? PMIs this evening. Mm -hmm. How's the reopening going? Um, we have the view that actually reopening for 2023 should carry growth 
to something with a six uh, handle for 2023. And that is off the very low basis uh, of 2022 with a three handle. So clearly things have to be kind of viewed together, thinking about long term uh, growth trend. But uh, we currently think that uh, the uh, growth pivot that we got a flavor of at the December uh, Central Economic Working uh, uh, Conference actually will be further reinforced at the two sessions that are coming up uh, in, in two weeks time. And the PMI data actually could also um, could also uh, uh, give further evidence of that uh, to, to that growth would would come through in this reopening uh, restart dynamics in, uh, in China. But 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 over the longer term, though, uh, structural growth in China is very uh, challenged. You know, by the end of this uh, decade, we're seeing China growth stabilizing with a three handle. So we're talking about longer wow. term challenging, but near term restart opportunities that we want to lean. TK, 6% GDP this year, and then back down to to levels like 3%. Invest around that. Just so you're aware, he's in the final rewrite on the Pharaoh 270-day outlook. It comes out March 31st. It always comes out in March. I wait for things to go wrong in the first quarter. He waits for you to change your view three times, and then he puts out his... I'm not sure that would work if I actually did this professionally, but you know, it's what we do here at Bloomberg Surveillance. We wait a quarter. Wait, Lee of BlackRock. Wait, thank you. Just awesome, as always. Thank you very much. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Right now, and a joy to have in our studios is someone who was immense help through the pandemic. David Page is head of macro research at AXA Investment Managers. Great to see you Good here you. Uh, with us. I'm going to cut to the chase. I love one of the words you used, asynchronous, because that's what it feels like to me right now. Can we have a slowdown, maybe not an NBER recession, but can we have a, quote, media recession, whatever that phrase means, but some parts of the economy do okay? Yeah, and I think the point that we make with asynchronous is that you can have slowdown in all of the economy, but at slightly different times, and that might defy the MBER definition of recession. So what we're thinking, and we're getting some of it in the data now, we've got this sort of nuance coming through from trade, we've got this nuance from um, inventory, so that's probably weak in the first half of the year. The consumer looks pretty solid, though, and I think it's as we move into the second half of this year, particularly if we get the slowdown coming through in the labour market, that you'll see a softening in, in the consumer side. So typically, and this is why recessions are so difficult to forecast, at least in terms of timings, 
you get a synchronized slowdown, and that's when you see recession. If you get it asynchronously, you know, one quarter's negative, then perhaps it's flat, then it's negative again. You know, remember, we've already had two quarters of negative growth that the MBER looked completely through. Right. And that wasn't a recession, in, in that was just last year. So we could get a sort of sawtooth pattern of GDP come through, which would be a muddle through. Oh. And I, I guess typically that would be a soft landing. Rounded up, German yields are up uh, up solidly uh, today, I might point out. I'm looking at the 10-year yield, 3.96 as a roundup on the 10-year yield. Okay, that's one story. But the other story is the disinflation to come. Model your trajectory of U.S. disinflation. So we think that headline inflation is going to fall back to around possibly just under 3.5% by mid-year. But then for By the, mid-year? By mid-year. But then by the second by half By Bastille of, Day? By... <laughs> We are a French house, but <laughs> so sometime around June, yeah. Um, but then, as we move into Carry the on. second half, bon. okay, continue. As we move into the second half of this year, we're expecting it to stay in that three and a half to four percent passage, and that's that's why we've always said the Fed is not going to be in a position to be able to ease in the second half of this year, which markets have, have repriced quite significantly now. But we also think it takes a little while throughout 2024 to get that down, and they need to crack the labour market. Well, here's the thing: when you're talking about an asynchronous recovery and a muddle through. Isn't that problematic for getting inflation down? Isn't a muddle through eventually allowing certain industries to possibly see price gains that will keep inflation higher, even as you see sort of the year-over-year comps getting more complicated for the others? Yeah, so to be clear, I mean, our view is still that we do see a mild recession. I stress mild, but we are looking at consecutive quarters of growth. But yeah, you're right. I mean, if we see this asynchronous, so growth is just slightly firmer than that, then the labor market doesn't loosen by quite as much, and that'll take a little bit longer for price to fall. Ultimately, an asynchronous slowdown, a below-trend growth, you know, this is the, the sort of the, the, the baseline that Fed Chair Powell talks to. We get below-trend growth coming through from the economy. The, the labor market eases a little bit, uh, and that's enough to see inflation fall back. We think it'll be more than that, but no, that, that's exactly the risk. We were joking earlier about how we have a show of people coming on and saying, we have no clue. And then people ask us, and we're like, we have no clue, because this is such a difficult time to really have a sense of what's going on. But I'm wondering how we can even be sure that that's enough to bring inflation inflation lower, right? We can't, right? No. So if, if you have central banks that at least vocally are adhering to a 2% target of inflation, how do we know that we're not going to see a 6% Fed funds rate and a 4% ECB target, which is now priced into the market? And I think that's the key risk. I mean, the, the central banks are pretty clear that they don't know either. I mean, we, we can roll back 15 months. We know the forecast errors that we all made, including the central banks in terms of the inflation outlook. And the central banks seem to have learned that lesson. But the the point of that is that now central banks are using backward-looking information to judge when they've done enough with their forward-acting tools of monetary policy. So they're looking in the rearview mirror. They're not, I don't think, looking too much at inflation. The headline's obviously important. But it's the labor mm. market that gives them the long steer as to inflation. And they're using that data to judge when they've done enough, when they know that rate hikes are still going to have a, a lagged impact on financial conditions going further forwards. And that, I think, is the biggest risk. If you're using backward-looking information to judge when you've done enough with your forward acting tool, it sounds like a recipe so, for over-tightening. Beautifully explained, and I guess the ex-posty is becoming ever more ex-posty, and there's some ramifications out there. We've observed, just as one theory, the Taylor rule is completely messed up right now. Torsten Slack over at Apollo models it near 9%, almost 10%. Bullard is saying, of St. Louis, is saying, let's go. There's others in the ECB saying the same thing. Let's go. Is there value to the urgency that Dr. Bullard speaks of? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the moves that you would get if you followed a Bullard-type approach is, is much more consistent, perhaps, with Fed history, that you could see the rates move a little bit higher to peak, maybe, you know, even towards a peak of 6%. But then, once you reach that, you would break the economy. You would have to see rate cuts follow quite quickly. And I think what the, the bulk of the committee wants to achieve this time around is a peak that isn't quite as eye-watering as that, but that is held in place for a little bit longer. And that provides the restrictiveness that slows the economy further. Before we let you go, the belief in lagged effects, is that enough for the Fed, for the ECB to pause at a level before they see the ramifications of their forward tools? No, they need to see some impact come through and they need to see that in the labor market. And particularly for the US, you know, 512,000 is absolutely nowhere near enough to see a slowdown in economic activity. And earnings growth, average earnings growth needs to be closer to three and a half. And they'll need to see that before they pause. David Page, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciated. In our studios here, David Page is with AXA Investment Management. <laughs> Sarah Mayock joins us right now. Let's jump into it. A chief investment officer at Naveen. Sarah, what has changed in your outlook in the last week or so? We have whipsaw. We are in shock. Back and forth. What has changed in the Naveen placement? Markets are adjusting to the fact that the Fed has more work to do. And this is monetary tightening is not taking a bite out of the economy. This is bad news for inflation and bad news for the market. So I think the markets generally stay in a trading range and the Fed stays in a holding pattern with rate hikes and then a pause until we can get some kind of break on inflation in terms of wages or shelter or, or spending on services. And we're just not really seeing that yet. And that's why we're, you know, we're generally thinking that the market's going to have trouble um, continue to move to the upside, likely a trading range or downside risk from here. Let's talk about the Wei Li point, that basically it's not worth necessarily going into the long end of the yield curve at 4% if you can get 5% at the short end, because you could potentially get higher yields and you could potentially get a better opportunity elsewhere. Do you agree with that stance? I think generally that is going to be the case going forward with now about three hikes getting priced into the markets for the Fed. And then again, no rate cuts in the future, likely a pause. And then if inflation doesn't break, you could even see more hikes from there. I think it is the short end of the yield curve that's going to continue to look more and more attractive versus the long end. So where are you looking for in terms of getting some sort of returns other than the short end? Are you starting to see opportunities in industrials, as we were talking about earlier? Are you starting to see opportunities in retail like Target that came out with expectations that were disappointing, but everyone still seems to be cheering? So starting with retail, I think, you know, consumer and the employment markets are going to be the piece of the puzzle that determine the depth of and, a, and the timing of a recession. So consumer, I think, is at risk. That's not an area that we're incredibly interested in. We're more on the conservative side, looking for quality companies and also some beta outside of the U.S. So starting in the U.S. with quality companies, companies that tend to grow their dividend, they tend to have strong balance sheets. They're more recession resilient, provide you some income protection going forward. So this is everything from infrastructure companies that are backed by utilities and waste management all the way over to companies like Linda or Coca-Cola, which tend to be a bit more defensive in a volatile market. Now, outside of the U.S., we think emerging markets look attractive because of valuations there, also the dollar which may not be as strong as it was last year. And also China continuing to reopen. I think EM finally has a tailwind. You could see some upside there. So kind of a balanced bet there, but staying a little bit more conservative in the U.S. because of the continued rate hikes that we see and the potential for a recession right. that may be delayed, but likely still comes. How does use of cash play in? I mean, the journal's got the article out on one trillion share buybacks. We saw Chevron, Mr. Worth, make a statement today. Define use of cash for Naveen. 
Well, first of all, just going to look at energy companies, I think that we've seen this with them for quite a number of years. They are more focused on returning cash to shareholders than on pulling barrels out of the ground. That's keeping supply tight for energy companies. And we agree that oil prices likely have more upside because demand remains reasonably strong, supply remains tight. You know, cash is, is an interesting asset class in the sense that it is paying good yield. My caution in terms of cash, though, of course, is that the markets tend to price in a recovery well before we see any of the data. So it's a timing issue. And when you're trying to time the markets, usually that's generally a loser's game. So while it's important to keep some cash in hand, I would continue to look for areas where you see good value. Now, these are areas like non-U.S. markets, particularly emerging markets, also in alternatives. Private credit tends to be more resilient during a recession. If you look at historical downdrafts in the markets, private credit tends to hold up better. Mm -hmm. And then conservative equities like dividend growers tend to be more resilient. Yeah. That's where I'd be looking to put my cash. Sir, I'd be rude if I didn't ask the Nuveen Heritage. Should we take advantage of municipal bonds this morning? I mean, fundamentals versus the valuations of municipal bonds are at a mismatch because of the strength of the economy and the tightening that's not impacting the economy yet municipalities still look very strong. So fundamentals are strong, valuations look interesting. You're seeing total returns in municipal bonds and also areas of taxable fixed income, such as leverage loans that still look very attractive to us. And again, that's why it's important to make sure you use your cash wisely because you are seeing entry points that you haven't seen in years or even decades in many of these asset classes, such as fixed income. Sarah, I've always wanted to ask you this question. How did Nuveen become the largest manager of farmland assets on the planet? You know, this is a historical asset class that we've been very uh, heavily invested in all the way back to uh, when uh, the TIA days as our parent company. It's an asset class that we thought was very resilient. It's a great asset class as a hedge to inflation. So it's just a very strong asset class and important, obviously, to society. Um, we've built it over time and it's become, as I think, in a, in a world where equities and fixed income have become very correlated alternatives such as farmland have been a very important piece of investors' portfolios. And they continue to be correlated this year as well, even when we were expecting that to break. Sarah, just wonderful as always. Sarah Malik there of Nuveen. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF. Ken Leon joins us right now, Director of Equity Research at CFRA, truly with decades of exposure. Ken, is this any way to do business? I mean, you know, CFA1, you got a John Deere annual report, 
maybe you got something else and this and that. And now we've got 118 page PowerPoints with a welcome from Mr. Solomon, a state of the franchise from John Waldron. Shanali Bassick will speak with Mr. Waldron at 12 noon. Very important. And then we have one Goldman Sachs. Is this a branding exercise or do you guys like you learn anything out of these soirees? Well, it's great to be here. <clears throat> and Goldman is probably best in delivering messages and roadshows. I mean, that's what they do as an investment bank. And, and it's all about what they're doing right first, and then they're going to get the hard questions later. Uh, they speak to client franchise, and <clears throat> essentially this means that everyone wants to do business with Goldman, uh, particularly the investment bank and uh, also asset and wealth management. Uh, but what's interesting here is that there's a lot of hard questions about their strategy from three years ago uh, to kind of button up with shareholders. They got a $30 billion authorized buyback, and they're talking about capital efficiency because they still right. are a regulated, regulated bank. It's to, a lot of questions yeah. today. To, to sum it from an amateur, that would be me, folks. Stephanie Cohen shows up at page, I believe, 54. And what she basically says is, can you give us two years to work this out? Is that how you read it, Ken Leon? Is there saying we need a 2025 hope and prayer? So the Goldman brand supposedly was going to conquer the consumer market, and it didn't. And, and that might have been being too confident. And I think it's block and tackle the next two years, uh, which will be profitability and return of capital. But the missing question here is that's great to be a great investment bank, but to be a great financial service company, you have to have recurring revenue, work through the cyclical parts of the market. And, you know, we're talking about Schwab, BlackRock. Uh, these are stable. Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs still is an agent. It, it is really dependent on client servicing. That is always difficult to get a higher valuation. At the same time, uh, I don't think they're going to make any big acquisitions. Uh, right now, they just want to kind of have a calm where they can tell shareholders, we're going to be more efficient, we're going to use less capital, and we're also going to find ways to be profitable and be smart, well, because they certainly weren't smart with their strategy before. So there is a really big question within this, which is how are they going to expand more into that stable kind of business, the asset management that you're talking about, without making an acquisition, without making major investments, and without even laying out any kind of path to do so in this presentation? 100%. And, and when you look at their presentation, it's not going deeper and bigger in terms of asset management or alternative investments, uh, because that's very choppy. It's going to be more the, the, the wealth management side, the advisory side, or in areas like Larry Fink had, which was uh, from getting the iShares with ETFs. Uh, so in time, when they need to look for a more predictable recurring revenue stream and a, and a lower source of funding, you know, it might be some of the custodial banks or, or even State Street, which has, you know, a great ETF franchise. Goldman would never look this way. But the market is saying, even if you execute and you have several quarters of great earnings out of the investment bank, we're not going to give you a higher multiple. So that's really the conundrum they have. And I think those are the questions that are going to come up today. 
There's also a question about its existing consumer-facing uh, platforms. I'm thinking about Marcus as well as some of the credit card partnerships. And right now, Dow Jones, Wall Street Journal is reporting that David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, was saying today that, that Goldman Sachs is considering strategic alternatives for its consumer platforms businesses, including Green Sky and their partnerships, their credit card partnerships with Apple and General Motors. Does this mean that they're going to reduce their footprint and sell some of those businesses in the near future? I think if, if it's any of the businesses that require significant capital, the answer is yes. For others which are transaction driven and they can leverage with partners, um, they'll certainly find ways that it could be incremental revenue and profit. Uh, but the big play is over. You know, Ken, I looked at the first grid chart, all of page, I think it's page five here. And they go against their leading peer, which is a Campbell soup. It's like a minestrone soup of this firm, this firm, this firm. Baloney. The leading peer group compare is Morgan Stanley. To end this conversation, what did James Gorman get right? James Gorman basically didn't go afar. So I have his, his, he was looking for adjacent markets like the workforce, 401k with E-Trade. He paid premium, but he got leg mason. He got established businesses versus uh, sitting in a room and saying, we got the best brand, which is Goldman, and organically, we're going to create businesses. It's very hard to do in financial services. That's the difference, Tom. Ken Leon, thank you so much. A brief there from the esteemed Ken Leon, CFRA. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.